millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Radio Westeros, House of the Dragon, Season 1, Episode 4, King of the Narrow Sea. Hello and welcome to Radio Westeros. I'm Yoke Boy and it's great to be here to talk about the fourth episode of House of the Dragon called King of the Narrow Sea. Today we'll be reacting to and evaluating this episode as well as making plenty of book comparisons because we are all hardcore book fans so you'll get some deep insights related to the text. Hopefully we'll avoid spoiling the future plot of House of the Dragon as much as we can but we will have a spoilers all books anything goes section at the very end and we'll give our unsullied audience a giant heads up for that. So whatever you're a Song of Ice and Fire, Game of Thrones background, we do have a lot to offer and we'll certainly be ready to fill in the blanks about lore and story depth that the show understandably skirts over. This episode jumped just under a year in the timeline and during the in-between, Queen Alicent has given birth to a second child, Helena, and Rhaenyra is midway through a grand tour in search of a suitable suitor. Rhaenyra remains unmarried and still free with at least some control over her own destiny, whereas Alison is now expected to behave less freely as a queen with two children. In this episode, the pair, who were formerly close friends with everything in common, were brought into contrast, and we're going to talk a lot about that today. This episode was great. It was full of burning desire, visceral conflict and de deceit at every turn. Hidden motives began to come to the fore and some characters were left full of cognitive dissonance and doubt. It was dialogue heavy and indeed many of the scenes revolved around two characters conversing. Despite being low on action, there was a deep exploration of wants, needs and responsibilities and once again we found the pacing to be indulgent and the mood palpable. We love this episode and House of the Dragon is, in our opinion, going from strength to strength in this long setup phase. The atmosphere is being built up beautifully. We can all sense there's a huge conflict to come, but for now we're just enjoying the writers and cast ratcheting up the tension levels week by week. We hope you're loving it as much as we are. We have so much to say about this episode and can't wait to go into more depth. So without further ado, let's say hello to my Radio Estros co-host, Lady Gwyn. 
Hello. Hey, everybody. Um, thanks for being here. Thank you, Emily, for being here once again. Yeah. <laughs> Excited to be here. I uh, know. We all are. We have a lot to say. Uh, this this is a huge episode. I think all of us, I, I know I very much felt that this was my favorite episode so far. I think you concurred with me on Twitter right after the <laughs> Yes, every single episode. I'm like, nope, this is my new this favorite. This is my favorite now. No, this is my favorite. So, I mean, mm-hmm, that's really mm-hmm. good news if that's what keeps happening. So, yeah, great. Like I said, we have loads to say here. Uh, but before we do begin our analysis, uh, we want to mention that Radio Westeros is supported by our patrons. Our patrons get lots of benefits like uh, early release of episodes and the occasional patron exclusive uh, so if you want to be a patron, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Radio Westeros. And before we start, a uh, quick shout out to the following patrons. Our Flaming Lightbringer patron, TJ Harrington, our Dragonsteel patron, Peter, and our Pale as Milk Glass patrons, Alex, Daniel, Chris B, The Song of Ice, Seth, Kelly, Laura, Sister Winter, Maltude, John Wagarian, and Empty Walls, first of his name, as well as B-Word and Mr. J, the Bear and the Maiden Fair, and Sir Tim of House Jib Jab Hot Dog Shop, house motto, we forge the chains we wear in life. Thanks so much, guys. Thanks to all of you. And as a reminder, we'll have shout outs in the outro for anyone who uses a super chat option tonight. Uh, so thank you in advance for that. Over to you, Yokeboy, to get us started. Okay, why don't we go to the beginning at Storm's End? This episode begins at Storm's End in the Stormlands as Rhaenyra searches for a suitor. We first see Lord Beric Dondarrion, although not the one from the Brotherhood Without Banners, but an old man here, trying in vain to interest Rhaenyra in the delights of Blackhaven and its deep, dry moat. He even mentions that he he's met Rhaenyra's great-grandmother, Queen Alessand, 50 years ago and in, in one of several nods to Targaryen ancestry in this episode. She is not impressed and is blunt in her refusal, perhaps even rude, when she points out how long ago Alessand lived in order to emphasise Dondarrion's age, which initiates the theme of Rhaenyra's decisiveness and female agency that is explored throughout this episode. Although she's lined up to be the next queen, we saw in the last episode that Viserys has given her some autonomy in in choosing a match for herself. She's a young woman with a strong, courageous personality, and although she doesn't yet know exactly what she wants, she does know what she doesn't want, and a man older than her father is certainly not it. But she also doesn't want a partner too young, as we see when a Blackwood boy, who some people thought was Samuel Blackwood from Book Cannon, but seems to be actually laid, named Willem here, steps up and tells Rhaenyra of the house's shared history. Yep, that's right. In another nod to the history of House Targaryen, little Willem Blackwood tells how his ancestor supported hers during the conquest, one of the first river lords to do so. Uh, That lord is never actually given a first name in Fire and Blood, but in the show here he's called Lucas Blackwood, probably a nod to Lord Titus Blackwood's son Lucas from the main series, just keeping those names in the family, which I love. Uh, After um, poor Willem really does a great job delivering his speech, but 
he endures a series of humiliating taunts from, of course, Gerald Bracken. Uh, Borman Baratheon tried half-heartedly to put a stop to it. But finally, uh, when Gerald calls him a craven right at the end of his speech, Willem responds with steel, and a duel breaks out in the hall, prompting Rhaenyra to announce her abrupt departure. Uh, somehow against the odds, little Willem Blackwood skewers the much larger Gerald Bracken, leaving their host with some real splainin' to do. So, uh, this scene, interesting as it was, uh, is not directly from Fire and Blood. It's actually a stand-in for a series of events that are, uh, mentioned in Fire and Blood. Last week, I talked about the visit to Casterly Rock, where Jason and Tylan Lannister had competed for Rhaenyra's uh, attention. But Rhaenyra apparently traveled widely during this time, and her eventually eventual choice of consort was always the foremost issue. So we also get this from Fire and Blood. When Rhaenyra visited the Trident in 112, the sons of Lord Bracken and Lord Blackwood fought a duel over her, and a younger son of House Frey made so bold as to ask openly for her hand. Fool Frey, he was called thereafter. So given their long history of enmity, Blackwoods and Brackens fighting over anything is hardly newsworthy. Um, But it is worth noting that the two young men in question in Fire and Blood were Samwell Blackwood and also Amos Bracken. And while Amos Bracken won the duel, it wasn't fatal for Samwell. Forrest Frey, uh, the famous Fool Frey, was also actually in this scene in this episode. Uh, he was cast, and he was—you uh, can find a still of him online. But he never got a chance to embarrass himself <laughs> due to this duel breaking out. Uh, I like to think that somewhere in the cutting room floor, there's a there's a shot of, or a scene of Forrest Frey. Um, acting like a fool in front of Rhaenyra. (laughs) So maybe we'll get to see that someday. Uh, And we will have more on this scene and those historic figures in our spoiler section. This means I have more to say about this (laughs) that I can't say right now. (laughs) Yeah, plenty more. I, just after that scene, I felt so fanserviced in the best possible way. It wasn't sort of a cringy, here you go, bat you around the head fanservice. It was a... A more subtle nod to the book readers that, you know, we can sit there. Yeah, well, we, we know what's going on here. Yeah, that was that was great. And let's move on to the return of the King of the Narrow Sea. As Rhaenyra sails back to King's Landing from Storm's End, her ship is buzzed by Caraxes, the first indication that Daemon has returned literally rocking the boat in his first moment on screen. And as a hat tip to History of Westeros Aziz for that one. He does have a way with words and puns. Typical of Damon. It's an incredibly dangerous move. And Rhaenyra is actually thrown to the deck and smashes her head on the gunwale, which could have resulted in a really serious injury. I was actually surprised when she came up without a mark on her but she is visibly happy and excited and clearly makes her way to the throne room to be on hand for her uncle's arrival as quickly as she can once she's in the port. Yeah, so this uh, scene of Damon and Viserys' reunion actually plays out remarkably as it does in Fire and Blood with some of the actual framing, even matching uh, artwork by Chase Stone from The World of Ice and Fire very, very closely part where he's standing in front of the Iron Throne holding his holding his crown out. 
one of the major differences is that in Fire and Blood, Damon arrived during a tourney that was being held to celebrate Viserys and Alicent's fifth anniversary, which is not what was going on here. The similarities really win it, though, um, as this quote shows. It says, wearing a crown and styling himself king of the narrow sea, he appeared unannounced in the skies above King's Landing on his dragon, circling thrice above the tourney grounds. But when at last he came to earth, he knelt before his brother and offered up his crown as a token of his love and fealty. Viserys returned the crown and kissed Damon on both cheeks, welcoming him home. And the lords and commons sent up a thunderous cheer as the sons of the spring prince were reconciled. Amongst those cheering loudest was Princess Rhaenyra, who was thrilled at the return of her favorite uncle and begged him to stay a while. So that quote does mention uh, their father, Prince Balon, who was a huge favorite amongst lords and small folk alike. He's not mentioned in the, this particular scene in the show, although he will be later on, as we'll be discussing. However, Viserys and Damon's mother, Alyssa, is mentioned in the next scene, which is a garden party. Viserys sure does love parties, which is actually exactly how he's described in Fire and Blood, fun-loving, generous, constantly hosting balls and feasts in the Red Keep. And so when his prodigal brother returns, what else would you do but have a party? It's pretty obvious that the king has indulged in quite a bit of wine by the time we arrive on the scene in the party. Uh, he's laughing with his brother, and they're arguing about who was their mother's favorite. Uh, he's saying that it was clearly Damon. And you might remember in our coverage of episode one that I mentioned that of the two brothers, Damon bore the most resemblance to their mother, Alyssa, who was famously loved riding and swordplay humiliated her younger brother Vagon in the castle yard as a child uh, because she was quite good with the uh, sword and he was definitely not. She called herself as body a wench as any barmaid in King's Landing and overall a pretty fitting comparison with Damon. Except in this scene, the body one is almost certainly Viserys who <laughs> rips an extremely loud fart, much to his own amusement, um, but really no one else's. Uh, after Queen Alicent suggests Damon might like to view their new tapestries. Spoiler, he would not. Uh, Alicent, I felt very bad for her in this scene. She's trying to be a good hostess. Uh, it's obvious she's not fully comfortable. You know, these two men are, you know, much older than her. They have all this shared history. Uh, they're, and the, she, she's somewhat excluded, I think, from that. She's probably feeling a bit under unappreciated as well, which then leads to a scene that feels somewhat unexpected, at least to me, which was the queen and the princess having a conversation, not only a civil conversation, but one that felt downright friendly, again, reaching right back to episode one. Yeah, exactly. Viserys, of course, is lost in this brotherly nostalgia and the camaraderie between him and Damon kind of ejects both uh, his daughter and wife from the conversation, which thrusts them together. You know, the audience is not meant to forget that despite Alicent and Rhaenyra being this, at the center of things in King's Landing and the story, they're not entirely comfortable there. Alicent, not a true tar Targaryen, but, you know, a royal womb. And Rhaenyra seeing herself as alone and resentful of the role she must fulfill. Despite the awkwardness and friction that's been going on between them, they can relate to each other in ways that nobody else really can. 
that bond between them is undeniable even as they chafe at it or find themselves at odds in different situations that we've been presented with. Allison is still fulfilling the role that we've seen her in since episode two, kind of this go-between between Viserys and Rhaenyra. Uh, I think she puts herself in that role, seeing it part as her duty as the queen to help her relationship and for the good of the realm. She understands the reality of Rhaenyra needing to wed, having had that experience herself. It's incredible that she isn't more resentful at this point when Rhaenyra as a Targaryen has been given a lot more freedom than she has to make her own choices and then still complains about it. And then Rhaenyra and Daemon begin to talk in a quiet part of the garden just by the side of the heart tree and they switch to High Valyrian. I just want to quickly say how beautiful this language designed by fantasy linguist David J. Peterson sounds and how convincingly the actors always seem to pull it off because it it does sound quite complicated. On a meta level, Rhaenyra and Daemon using this language denotes that the, there's a close and sometimes intimate bond between these characters. And yes, this dynamic is going to really be explored closely in this episode. When Rhaenyra asks him what it is he wants, he replies only the comforts of home. Given that we know, as a man of adventure, he's not entirely comfortable in the Red Keep. And having seen the way he was smiling at her through the garden, we sense that he must have something up his sleeve. Rhaenyra senses it too, but she puts it down to a change in him following his exploits at the Stepstones. When Damon counsels her that marriage is mainly about contracts and appearances, and he should know, remembering he has a wife in the Vale who thus far holds such little value to Damon or the plot, it seems, given that she's remained off screen, Rhaenyra replies that marriage is easier on men than women. Rhaenyra is outlining the unfairness of the patriarchy wherever she goes. And with the mention of his, quote, bronze bitch, Damon reveals that he really wants to be rid of her, which again brings about the question of what is it that he does want? There are so many schemes and hidden motives among the characters in this story. It adds a real layer of authenticity to the political scheming, I think. Rhaenyra points out that it's fortunate he and his wife have had no children, which again hints that Damon has other plans and craves the freedom to follow them through. And on the subject of babies, Rhaenyra makes it plain why she doesn't want to be imprisoned in a castle squeezing out babies. She saw what this tradition did to her own mother. And we saw in the previous scene, this worldview puts her in contrast with Alison, which is another theme this episode will follow up on repeatedly. Damon affirms Rhaenyra's stance by advising her not to live in fear, but to enjoy herself and seize the moment, which prefigures what happens between them later, of course. The scene ends with Rhaenyra declaring her love of solitude, which comes across to me as almost asexual, but of course Damon tells her plainly, changing to the common tongue, that that would be a lonely life. My takeaway from this scene is that Damon and Rhaenyra do have quite a bit in common, that he understands her pretty well and that he's an older figure beginning to use his mentor position to influence stroke manipulator. So after this scene, we move on to one of the few scenes in the episode that actually features multiple characters conversing together rather than a pair of characters in dialogue. 
we come back to the small council chamber, chamber, which featured very prominently in the first couple of episodes uh, for what amounts to basically a debriefing following Damon's return and the news he brought with him that the Stepstones had been left in the hands of the Tides and that the Lord of the Tides had returned to his own castle on Driftmark. Rhaenyra is sitting at the council table, a sign that her father has kept to his word about her being his heir, and as described in Fire and Blood, actually, he's keeping her at his side and involving her in the daily business of ruling. Tylan Lannister, the new master of ships, declares that they have a sea snake-shaped problem, um, that uh, they've exchanged a crab feeder for a sea snake, is actually what he says specifically. Uh, he's suggests that he's still wroth over Viserys choosing Alicent over Lena, and did you catch this sort of eye roll from Otto Hightower when that was mentioned? Uh, it's pretty good. Uh, Melos definitely agrees with this, makes a suggestion that there could be a way to win him over, perhaps referring to the looming plan to marry Rhaenyra to Lenor. But then Sir Otto speaks up, revealing that Corlys Valerian plans to marry his daughter to a son of the Sea Lord of Bravos, which is meant to be quite a dramatic reveal, and uh, we're going to talk about a potential source for that information a bit later. Lena's betrothal is actually a plot point taken from Fire and Blood, although with some changes, since uh, in the book it came shortly after Viserys married Allison, and it doesn't really seem to have been all that controversial. Here, Viserys's council are quite concerned about the prospect of House Valerian forging alliances with the free cities. And uh, returning to a theme, it's declared that if the sea snake makes this alliance, the king will have no choice but to make one of his own. And the tight focus on Rhaenyra's face really leaves no doubt that once again, she's aware that she's being discussed as a bargaining chip. In light of which, and uh, in light of her uncle's advice to live life on her own terms, what comes next is probably no surprise. Okay, so why don't we talk about the long and wonderful sequence where we go into the nightlife of King's Landing. It begins when Rhaenyra comes back to her quarters to discover a little goodie bag of mysteries <laughs> containing some rough clothes and a map to a secret passageway out of a room to the room with Balerion's skull. In hindsight, we shouldn't have been surprised that this was Damon's ploy, as we did see him secretly spying on the council in a previous episode. So he, he's obviously a man well acquainted with the secrets of the Red Keep. Uncle Damon wants to take Rhaenyra for a fun night out on the town. What could go wrong? And to her, and, and to open her sheltered eyes in more ways than one. I thought the adventure into the city was a really exciting sequence. We've talked a lot about how House of the Dragon is bringing in interesting settings to the story. Last week, we had the woods in the wilderness, and here that's been juxtaposed with a sort of urban episode. And what's really interesting about these scenes is that it captures something that so far has been lacking. It brought the nightlife action of this city to our screens. More often than not in this world revolving around the ruling class, when a character goes into the city, you get their POV and you see the city through their lens. There are exceptions such as Aya surviving in, in the city incognito after her father's beheading. 
And here a similar trick is used. By putting Damon and Rhaenyra in disguise, we get an honest and real account of the nightly goings-on in the city. It breathes life into this aspect of the world building, and I found it intriguing seeing the flaming brass dragons, the tightrope walkers, and the general hustle and bustle of Flea Bottom and beyond. These scenes felt authentic to me and improved the sense of verisimilitude of King's Landing. It felt lived in. And I think we might have spotted some juicy foreshadowing, but I'm going to hold that back for our spoiler section because it is very spoilery. So we'll circle back to this foreshadowing at the end. Okay, so these uh, scenes of Rhaenyra sneaking out into the city dressed as a page are incredibly rich in fire and blood parallels. Uh, not one, but three of Jaehaerys and Alysanne's daughters are noted to have either snuck out of the castle and or dressed in boys' clothing. You got Rhaenyra's grandmother, Alyssa, the body wench I was mentioning earlier, who seems to have enjoyed just keeping up with her brothers and dressing in male clothing to facilitate her love of running, climbing, flying, riding, swordplay, whatever, whatever they were up to, she was trying to do the same. Then there was their younger sister, Sarah, who famously snuck out of out to a brothel with a group of carousing young nobles who all ended up in some very serious trouble. Uh, Sarah was ultimately banished from court by Jaehaerys, which she responded to by running away to Essos and becoming a courtesan in Lys. Uh, then the, the uh, even younger sister, Vesera, changed clothes with her maid to sneak into the city and have one last night of merriment with half a dozen male companions before she was due to leave to marry Lord Theomor Manderley in White Harbor. And that evening featured some of the same places that Rhaenyra saw with Damon. Pot shops and rat pits of Flea Bottom, the inns along Eel Alley and River Row where the serving wenches danced on tables, the brothels on the Street of Silk. But a drunken horse race at the end of that evening led to an accident in which the 15-year-old princess was killed after being thrown from her horse. So with all that in mind, it should come as no surprise later when Viserys mentions what Jaehaerys would have done in his place. Uh, and remember in episode three, Lionel Strong actually referenced the troubles that the old king had with his daughters. So this this stuff is no, you know, House Targaryen is no stranger to princesses carousing about in the city, um, as, you know, as you'll see if you read Fire and Blood. But one of the first things that Rhaenyra and Daemon see in the city is a mummer's play about the royal family. Now, street performances and mummers are a pretty common device George uses a, a lot, especially to show discontent amongst the small folk or, you know, give them a, a way to voice their opinion about things. You had uh, Tanzel Tutal in Duncan Eggs performing a puppet show about dragons that drew the attention and ire of Prince Arion Targaryen. And then Cersei had a group of puppeteers who performed a show about a dragon eating a lion arrested in a feast for crows. And of course, there's that play about the Lannisters that features in the Mercy chapter, The Winds of Winter, and was adapted in Game of Thrones. Uh, I also wondered about the street performer that uh, they see briefly, uh, who's juggling fire. Uh, I think that might be a nod to a fire mage that Danny sees in Karth in A Storm of Swords. His fire magic is credited to the rebirth 
of Danny's dragons, the fact that dragons have come back into the world, have brought magic back into the world. So I wondered if perhaps this was a subtle way of showing that when dragons were very much alive, this sort of thing was fairly commonplace. So getting back to the play, you've got some hilarious portrayals of the royals. Very well done. Uh, you know, it's all all male actors even playing the, the female roles, just as would have been historically in in theater. And Damon seems more amused than offended, really, even though he's, you know, mentioned several times. The key line seems to be about the succession. Who will it be? The brother, the daughter, or the little princeling of three? And the crowd seems to overwhelmingly favor the little princeling. Big surprise. They cheer him. They boo Rhaenyra. They really make no bones about the fact that they love Rhaenyra as a princess, the realm's delight, but they cast huge doubt on her ability to be a queen. She herself walks away, dismissing their opinion as really of no matter, totally unimportant. But Damon really tries to take this and make it a genuine teachable moment, telling her that if she wants to rule these people, uh, their opinions are definitely going to matter. Yeah, as Gwen said, Rhaenyra isn't exactly appreciative of this interpretation of her, nor of the crowd's reaction to the idea of her as a queen. Not exactly heeding Damon's advice here, she leads him on a chase through the city after stealing from a merchant. Rhaenyra, like, clearly thinks this is a game and is laughing, but considering what we saw from the militant gold cloaks in episode one, this is likely something that children without her extreme privilege would get severely punished for when caught. In fact, when Rhaenyra careens into a gold cloak who growls, and who might you be running from, boy, I actually was scared for a second until I realized who it was. It, it really reminded me of when Arya was in disguise in A Game of Thrones and is nearly captured by castle guards who don't recognize her and, and gets chased around. Luckily, Rhaenyra happens to know this particular gold cloak, who is Sir Harwin Strong, the son of the Master of Laws. Uh, last seen leering at her when she returns from the hunt covered in boar's blood, actually. Where the show is heading and thrusting these two together again, I won't get into right now, but it is interesting that there's now a path for information about her escapades to get back to the king, not only via the route we see in the show with Otto, but through another small council member as well. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Great points there. So why don't we talk about, before we talk about what else transpired that evening in 
Fleabottom and beyond, why don't we talk about Viserys and Alicent who are remaining in red in the Red Keep? Viserys is seen bathing. He has a small group of carers with him and he seems to be in a great deal of pain and he's very sensitive. He's got these sores all over his body. Physically speaking, Viserys is clearly weakening. In the first episode, we saw he had a wound that wouldn't heal. In the second episode, he placed his hand in a bowl of maggots because a, a nick from the Iron through Throne began to mortify. In the third, he's lost fingers to the said wound. And here in the fourth, we see his discomfort as his physical condition seems to be gradually worsening. From early on in episode one, we're being continually reminded that Viserys' health, he's a man of poor physical disposition, let's put it that way, quite faithful to how he's portrayed in Fire and Blood. The writers are lodging in our minds that this guy is not going to be around forever. Even the most unsullied viewer can sense in their heart that this king is vulnerable to health problems. And as for Alison, she's seen tending to his sores. Remember that we started the episode with an older man making a play for young Rhaenyra, and in one of the many contrasts drawn between her and the Queen, here is Alison, and she's stuck with an ailing older man with little excitement in her life. Yeah, quite sad, really, for her. Uh, when not tending to Viserys, we get a shot of Alison comforting her crying baby. This is her second child, Helena. Uh, much of her time is spent either in solitude or caring for the king or her children by them. There's really no familial closeness between she and her father, and we haven't seen her brother, Sir Gwaine, since that initial tourney in episode one. Other women at court, close in age, seem scant. No ladies-in-waiting or nearby cousins. It seems a lonely time to be uh, at court as a woman compared to other folks in A Song of Ice and Fire, such as Marjorie Tyrell, Princess Elia Martell, or Queen Cersei, all shown to have female companions and bedmates. You know, perhaps lacking in those connections, we can better understand why Alicent reaches out for Rhaenyra's friendship again and again, despite the princess not always making it easy on her. Alicent gets called to Viserys late at night. She actually even tries to get out of it, kind of pushing back on the late hour. And there we get this intimate view and an unglamorous view of what it is like to be queen always needing to be willing and able to serve the realm. She has no agency here, really only her duty. While the bath scene and other moments of dialogue show that she cares for the king, it's really clear in her facial expressions here that care doesn't really translate at all to desire, and it's hard to blame her. She dutifully lays there, fulfilling the role but not enjoying it, all while you know smiling only when he kind of pulls her gaze right towards him. Contrast the scene that this is interspersed with, where Rhaenyra learns that sexuality can be pleasurable and freeing. As we hear Damon tell Rhaenyra, marriage is a duty, yes, but that doesn't stop us from doing what we want, fucking who we want. We see Alicent resigned to her life, not afforded the same privileges that Damon claims he and Rhaenyra have as dragons. Alicent will never really get that opportunity as the queen, for all of her power and station are derived through her husband. The best she can hope for is to provide the king plenty of heirs and mostly be left alone. Hopefully for Alicent, you know, this night's coupling <laughs> will lead to the conception of her third child. So she's spared some late night appointments for a while. Who's, you know, Viserys is like panting and struggling. He's 
maimed and wounded. As, as Yoke already mentioned, you know, in one shot, we get an updated look of this wound on Viserys' back that we saw back in episode one. You know, there's focus on his hand again, his missing fingers. We've spoken in past episodes about what these wounds symbolize, his weak kingship, the rejection from the Iron Throne, which is the source of most of his cuts, the festering corruption that his misrule brings to bear. And as far as the hand goes, it doesn't appear to be Viserys' only rotten hand, but, you know, we'll talk about Otto later, I guess. (laughs) Yes, very good. We will. We sure will. So... Let's uh, go back to the contrasting scenes because the, the way these scenes were, you know, obviously framed, we're going back and forth between this very, I like this coupling. It was like just so just utilitarian, um, boring. And then these very exciting scenes out in the city. Uh, so the Street of Silk is their destination. Now, to paint a picture for you, if you look at a map of of King's Landing, you have over on the uh, sort of east or southeastern corner, you have the Red Keep. That's on Aegon's High Hill. That's overlooking uh, Blackwater Bay. The Street of Silk is over on Rhaenys' Hill, which is across the city on the sort of northern side of the city where the Dragon Pit is. Uh, so they had to travel quite a quite a ways uh, across. Uh, so, you know, in contrast to much of the city that they traveled across to arrive at their destination, which did include a substantial part of Flea Bottom, the Street of Silk is home to the most exclusive brothels and pleasure houses in the city. They're haunts of nobility and wealthy residents of the city. So when you arrive here, gone are the puppeteers, the mummers, the street vendors, the raucous crowds. And in their place, you get these sumptuous, if somewhat shadowy, manses filled with well-to-do patrons and plenty of exotic dancers and music. Mainly, you get these drummers uh, whose rhythms really add to the aura of sensuality and chaos that's permeating the scene. But then Damon leads Rhaenyra deep inside a certain pleasure house, which is full of curtained alcoves behind which men and women are taking part in all of the pleasures that are on offer. And as they enter, he removes the main part of her disguise, which is the page cap, which had covered her long silver hair and prevented her from being recognized as they cross the city. So it should be immediately obvious that now that they've reached their destination, he wants her to be recognized And it should also be obvious that she is recognized. You get this kind of wave of whispers and murmurs and stares that follows them as they travel along a corridor. And the music also changes. You got that manic, chaotic drumming that greeted them when they arrived on the Street of Silk uh, is now a low thrumming, very deep and dissonant. It is unsettling, and it feels like it would be more at home in a horror movie. Uh, Damon tells her when she asks what this place is that it's a place where people come to take what they want and he's not lying because he's literally brought her here to take something that he wants something he's been building up to for years to stop his own rapid descent down the line of succession it becomes brutally obvious that Damon has designs on Rhaenyra herself uh and 
he begins this sort of dance of seduction. But something happens. As he begins this seduction, Rhaenyra responds very eagerly to his advice that a woman can seek pleasure in fucking. And the moment she asserts herself, Damon finds himself kind of off balance and unable to perform. And notably, this is not the first time that we've seen him frustrated in this way. Uh, so, so there you go. Two times we've seen Damon uh, sort of engaged in the act, but unable to perform. So this time he just walks off, leaving Rhaenyra unprotected and alone. It's the second time in this episode that he's endangered her well-being, the first time being when he flew in and buzzed her ship and, I mean, didn't smash her head in. She was lucky. Also didn't, you know, knock her over the side of the ship. <laughs> so, um, so there we go. Uh, he's obviously not all that concerned with that aspect of things. Uh, I do want to also note that Damon was in full possession of his faculties when he left her. In spite of the fact that the next time we see him, he will apparently be suffering from the mother of all hangovers, he really cannot blame drink for what happened with Rhaenyra, although perhaps he might blame what happened with Rhaenyra for the drinking. Definitely. While we're talking about, you know, a lot of these intimate scenes, I, I want to bring up some of the behind the scenes stuff. So, you know, I think tonally, these scenes felt different. I think, you know, some people have said they felt refreshing. They really kind of held that balance between, you know, discomfort, taboo, and, and you know, true intimacy. I think, you know, some of this is due to the use of an intimacy coordinator. Emily Carey spoke to Jezebel this week about the, the use of that and how that made her a lot more comfortable and very safe in her scenes with Patty Constantine. Um, additionally, this, this episode was directed by a, a female director as well. Her name is Claire Kilner, and we'll see more of her in episode five and nine this season. You might have seen that she spoke a bit on Inside the Episode, and I really wish we had heard a lot more from her. You know, she mentioned wanting to kind of unlearn what she'd seen from intimate scenes in other media because so often they'd been directed by men and she wanted to recognize kind of the the, the female perspective. And I, I think she succeeded here. We get a lot of buildup in the way that the camera cut from, you know, Damon facing away from her, then towards her. There's a lot of focus on the curiosity and vulnerability that Rhaenyra was feeling. And I think that that authenticity really carried through to her next encounter with a certain white knight. Uh, what do you think, young boy? Yeah, let's move to Rhaenyra and Kristen Cole. Rhaenyra turns from her outing having been left a bit frustrated by Damon's initial seduction and then the denial of sexual gratification. She is the princess, she has a lot of power and has just been taught a lesson that she can and should seize what she wants. When she lures Kristen into a bedroom and begins flirting with him at first he says no there is a major power imbalance between the pair and there's an uncomfortable element of coercion leading to question marks about the nature of consent I've seen a lot of people talking about this in the fandom and I think we're you know you're right to be having these sort of conversations and exploring this part of Kristen wants to go through with it but he has sworn a sacred vow and she's encouraging a very, very serious situation for him, 
given her standing. There's certainly echoes of Ariane and Eris Hokar in this scene, although Rhaenyra's motives here are about sex, not politics. While Rhaenyra is taking Damon's advice and encouragement to heart from being fearless to screwing who you want, Cole's cognitive dissonance is palpable. I think we're seeing this theme again and again in House of the Dragon, characters with different sorts of motives who are torn inside about the decisions they make. And this all conveys very efficiently George R. R. Martin's mantra that he likes to write by that the only thing worth writing about is the human heart in conflict with itself. Here, Cole's heart is in conflict this is the definition of forbidden love, vows versus desire. And although we saw in the last episode that the pair do have a connection, in the inside the episode featurette, there was the insinuation that Rhaenyra had gone for the nearest guy. When the camera focuses on Kristen Cole folding up his white cloak, there's no dialogue because there doesn't need to be. A picture speaks a thousand words, and I think that was a great shot. In terms of book canon, there's no parallel like for like, given that the histories are recounted by three unreliable narrators, and as such, are not matter of fact. Grand Maester Runciter merely says Damon and Viserys quarrelled with no apparent explanation given, but there are two sources who go into great detail about this triangle, and I'm going to read some of the inspiration behind these scenes. Septon, Eustace, and Mushroom tell another tale, or rather two such tales, each different from the other. Eustace, the less salacious of the two, writes that Prince Damon seduced his niece the princess and claimed her maidenhood. When the lovers were discovered abed together and brought before the king, Rhaenyra insisted she was in love with her uncle. King Viserys would not hear of it, however, and reminded his daughter that Prince Daemon already had a wife. In his wrath, he confined his daughter to her chambers, told his brother to depart, and commanded both of them never to speak of what had happened. The tale as told by Mushroom is far more depraved, as is oft the case with his testimony. According to the dwarf, it was Sir Criston Cole that the princess yearned for, not Prince Damon, but Sir Criston was a true knight, noble and chaste and mindful of his vows, and though he was in her company day and night, he had never so much as kissed her, nor made any declaration of love. When he looks at you, he sees the little girl you were, not the woman you've become, Damon told his niece. But I can teach you how to make him see you as a woman. So I, I did mention the sort of mentoring, mentoring dynamics earlier. Mushroom giving, does go on to give an extremely salacious account of Damon teaching Rhaenyra about sex. But it's worth noting that Mushroom insists that Damon did not take Rhaenyra's maidenhead. That was credited to Kristen Cole. And so although the show might not have a mushroom, it seems at least they're leaning into some of the, his testimony, I think. Yes, indeed. Um, I think a lot of times Mushroom is sort of, you know, minus all the grotesquely salacious parts. <laughs> Mushroom's got some truths to tell, so... It'll be interesting to see how that plays out going forward. Uh, let's talk about Myceria now. In Fire and Blood, Damon sent Myceria away to Essos after the Dragonstone incident. But 
here she appears to just have simply returned to her establishment in the Street of Silk. Uh, having spent time establishing this character, it really made sense for them to, you know, give her a bigger role uh, early on. So that's that's great because uh, I think she's an interesting character. We do remain in the dark about her presence, though. Uh, even when we see uh, the young boy obviously recognize Rhaenyra and run off until he later arrives at the Red Keep with a message for the hand and the guard states it's a messenger from the White Worm, which is the nickname Myceria is known by in Fire and Blood. So Otto will later tell Viserys that his informer is very reliable and implies that he's worked with them for a long time, which of course leads to the probable conclusion that she was also his source regarding Damon's Air for a Day toast in episode one, uh, which also occurred in her establishment. And I wonder if she could potentially be the source of Otto's big revelation in that most recent small council scene about Corliss betrothing Lena to the Sea Lord's son. That's a bit of information that she could easily have picked up from the recently returned Damon. So Myceria obviously has numerous possible motives, some of which, you know, anything ranging from jealousy or resentment towards Rhaenyra, who it's pretty obvious is often on Damon's mind. Uh, recall that silver-haired maiden comment from episode one. Uh, but some of which could also be related to her very complex relationship with Damon. I mean, first of all, you have her anger about being used as bait in episode two. Uh, but we also can't rule out the possibility that they're working together. Um, so this first time we actually see Mazaria back on screen, she's with Damon, apparently having given him a room for the night after what turned out to be an out and out bender on his part. And she tells him that he's lucky she's looking out for him. When Damon calls her a whore, she makes it plain that is that's no longer accurate. She's actually found a new line of business, but she doesn't specify what it is. The viewer knows or is beginning to suspect, of course. And if you were in any doubt, that same young boy enters the room right at that moment and hands her a fistful of coins, which obviously is payment for his message to the hand. So this combined with the uh, real discomfort that Damon suffered when the Air for a Day comment was revealed, I think actually lends itself to the conclusion that Masseria is operating at least on some level without his knowledge. Um, but We'll go back to that, Myceria, and maybe some of her motives in the spoiler section. Her implied statement, though, uh, about being in the information trade, uh, that it's more profitable than the skin trade, put me in mind of Varys, another associate-born spy and information gatherer, telling Tyrion his origin story in A Clash of Kings. He said, I begged, I stole, and I sold what parts of my body still remained to me. Soon I was as good a thief as any in Myr, and when I was older, I learned that often the contents of a man's letters are more valuable than the contents of his purse. So clearly these two have experienced similar paths to success and appreciation for the value of information. I also wanted to note that while Myceria's use of the phrase skin trade is obviously a slang term for sex work, it could also be a sneaky reference by the writers to a horror novella by uh, George R. R. Martin of that name that was published in 1988. So uh, that one, I think, is about werewolves. So Different skin <laughs> trade. Very different. <laughs> so 
after Otto receives the message from Myceria, we see him struggling and really preparing for the conversation he knows that has to come. In a very short scene by himself, Reese Ifans really sells that conflicted emotions that Otto must feel here, knowing that he has to deliver this message that could cause a rift between himself and the king. Otto knows this news can only bring trouble for House Targaryen and he has to share it, but the news itself weakens Otto's personal enemies, uh, definitely Damon and potentially Rhaenyra as well, um, in, her, in her being the heir. As someone who seems to like to manipulate from the shadows, it feels like Otto doesn't really like having to snitch directly on his enemies, fearing that it is going to expose that, that ambition that he has. So when Viserys initially says what of it to the news that Rhaenyra was spotted in a brothel, Otto is forced to share more details. He seems deeply uncomfortable with this, and Viserys dismisses it as a lie. The king then demands the source, but Otto refuses, as we've said before. This might have saved like him from Viserys' wrath if he had given up that source, but instead he, he protects and gets chewed out for it. Uh, I can't imagine how different the story would be if Otto had just given up the white worm then and there. But instead, Viserys banishes him from his sight, saying, you think yourself a cunning man? Your designs are obvious. Uh, Do you wish to have your blood on the Iron Throne so badly that you're willing to destroy mine own? And it's actually a refreshing moment of wisdom from Viserys and another example of him trying to protect Rhaenyra. But often these moments happen in private or, you know, in closed chambers. As we saw before, Viserys' defense of his daughter clearly hasn't been public enough to sway all of his lords, nor much of the small folk, but this is still a step in the right direction for the king for now. And as the conversation between Viserys and Otto comes to a conclusion, we see that Alison is eavesdropping from the shadows. As in the main series, you have to be really careful what you say in the Red Keep and around King's Landing because you never know who is listening and a lot of the time someone is listening. Unlike some of the other spying we do see though, Alison's motive seems to be centred around concern for her friend, I think, as the next scene seems to prove. Yeah, in the next scene, we see that Alicent summons Rhaenyra to the godswood, and we find her standing in front of the heart tree. The show has really set this up as their place since episode one. The significance of the heart tree is important to the scene especially, uh, bringing weight to the confrontation that's about to take place. As many know, lying in front of the heart tree is uh, sacrilegious to uh, followers of the old gods. Jon Snow tells Jor Mormont, My lord father believed that no man could tell a lie in front of a heart tree. The old gods know when men are lying. My father believed the same, said the old bear. This is clearly established lore um, and a belief system for the old gods. And though neither Alicent nor Rhaenyra follow the old gods, magic is real in this universe, and lying or misleading someone in front of a heart tree may foreshadow trouble to come, regardless of that person's personal religious beliefs. So to set the scene up better, Allison overheard her father's ac- accusations and wants to hear the truth from Rhaenyra herself. She feels really betrayed by her friend slash stepdaughter, who had so much more freedom uh, when compared to Allison and choosing her match, and yet still is ungrateful and hostile to her position as princess and heir and what that might mean to her future. Rhaenyra plays dumb at first, and Alicent's stiff upper lip wavers here. She proclaims that her father said that Rhaenyra fucked Damon in a pleasure house, nearly in tears having to speak the words. And I think she really wants it to be false. She wants to believe better of Rhaenyra and is quick to put 
the more of the blame on Damon or the, you know, Targaryen customs. Uh, I'm assuming that is code for tapestries. Alicent's proclamation that she only wants to help Rhaenyra feels really genuine here. Emily Carey once again brings so much uncertainty, vulnerability, and hope to the scene all at once. They really impress me every time I see them on screen. And for her part, we see Rhaenyra's indignation at the accusation which she knows to be false. Never mind that it's true enough in spirit and that she is certainly no longer a maiden, but she denies it, calling the statement a vile accusation, desperate to prove herself and perhaps seeing that she can capitalise on Alicent's loyalty. Rhaenyra makes a big statement to convince her stepmother that she didn't sleep with Damon and remains a maiden. She swears Damon didn't touch her and swears it by her dead mother's memory. This is obviously a lie, though the spirit of the statement was meant to convince Alison that she had not had sex with Damon, which was true. But as Viserys will tell Rhaenyra, perception is much more important than truth. And paired with Damon's reaction when he's confronted by Viserys, Rhaenyra's denial is one that will have big consequences for the fragile friendship of the princess and the queen. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I, I loved this episode where they brought back that potential for them to be friends again. Uh, and it would appear that they brought that back only so that they could smash it <laughs> even harder. We'll see. We'll have more on that later. Let's talk about Viserys and Damon. Damon is dragged before the king by some of the king's guard and in a very tense uh, confrontation. The still hungover Damon uh, spends the entire encounter lying on the floor of the throne room where he is alternately kicked, shouted at, and has a Valyrian steel dagger held to his throat by his brother Viserys, who is 100% enraged father throughout the entire scene. Damon starts with a sort of bravado, which I, I think is rooted in the inherent Targaryen self-superiority that Viserys actually disclaimed in the very first episode. From Damon's perspective, surely if a family are closer to gods than men, can't they just do as they please? Uh, he intentionally lets his brother believe the worst and then suggests that he be allowed to take Rhaenyra as a second wife, essentially confirming that that was his plan all along, to ensure that Rhaenyra was seen, uh, that her reputation be endangered, and then offer to marry her to save her reputation. Damon speaks rather unconvincingly of the Conqueror and restoring the House of the Dragon to its proper glory, uh, Viserys is having none of it, uh, and honestly, seeing as how the past few years aside, this era is actually described as the peak of Targaryen power, it seems pretty obvious that the dragon that Daemon wants to restore to its former glory is actually himself. As angry as he is, Viserys in the end merely orders his brother to get out of the city and return to his wife in the Vale, something that he's definitely tried before, uh, with no real effect. Uh, he does say something about forever, but Damon doesn't really seem that upset by all of it, probably indicating that he's been here before. He just groans and rolls over and says, as you wish, brother, uh, as if the real inconvenience here is just his massive hangover. 
in Fire and Blood, by contrast, Damon is banished from the Seven Kingdoms, never to return on pain of death, in spite of some of Viserys' counselors actually recommending that the prince be executed for treason. So he's really getting off quite lightly here, which might have something to do with the pace that the show has to set for this season. Because uh, given some of the plot points they have to hit before the season is over, Damon can't really be off screen too much more. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, to complete kind of the game of telephone going around with all these characters involved <laughs> discussing last night's ex- escapades, you know, fresh from her conversation in the Godswood, Allison seeks out Viserys, who's fresh from the throne room, and they finally get to talk about things. I really appreciate that despite how the awful situation that Allison is in, having little choice in, you know, her sex life with Viserys, she does seem to be a wise counselor and value that part of being queen. Allison is out to defend Rhaenyra again, saying that she thinks it's more likely that Rhaenyra was being honest about not sleeping with Damon than that Damon was about actually sleeping with her. Allison seems determined following her conversation with Rhaenyra to trust her friend, you know, who would lie in front of a heart tree after all. And she is right that Damon does have motives to deceive Viserys, not only in reducing him, as she says, but also that uh, he really does want to take Rhaenyra to wife, I think. Uh, That proposal is straight from the pages of Fire and Blood, after all, and more on that later. <laughs> Viserys uh, has a more cynical view of things, though, and unfortunately for Alicent, a more accurate view. He he reminds her that Damon and Rhaenyra are both blood of the dragon, both chaotic, and the scene closes with Alicent still hopeful, leading into Viserys' conversation with Rhaenyra, which I think Yokeboy can tell us about. Yes, yeah, so Viserys and Rhaenyra. When Rhaenyra joined Viserys in his chambers... He's heating up the Valyrian steel dagger, famous to Game of Thrones viewers for being the cat's paw blade Catelyn Stark is cut with when defending the comatose Bran, and later as the weapon that Arya used to take down the Night King and end the threat of the White Walkers once and for all. Although the cat's paw scene was lifted almost like from like from the books, it remains to be seen if the dagger will have such a momentous endgame as killing off the others in book canon. We'll have to see. Here in show canon, though, the writers have poured even more significance and symbolism into the Valyrian steel folds of this weapon, said to predate Aenar Targaryen, father of Daenys the Dreamer. In other words, it comes from Valyria before the Doom. When heated, one can clearly make out a series of glyphs along the blade. Rhaenyra translates the glyphs to read, From my blood comes the prince that was promised, and his is the song of ice and fire. It turns out that King Aegon the Conqueror had the dagger inscribed by, quote, the last Valyrian pyromancers to preserve the sentiment of the prophetic dream he thought he'd had that forewarned of the apocalyptic White Walker invasion that unfolded in the main series. Although... Viserys has said that this secret is to be passed from Monica to heir until it comes to fruition. In book canon, it has become very distorted. What, however it was passed down, or if it was passed down, it's fragmented and somewhat lost to time. By, th- by the time it gets to Rhaegar Targaryen, he reads something in the scrolls that inspires him to ready himself for battle and with the ghost of High Heart's prophecy that the prince that was promised would be born of the Ares Rhaella line, 
he at first believes it to be himself. However, in the House of the Undying, Daenerys sees a vision of Rhaegar commenting to his wife Elia that their son Aegon is the prince that was promised and his would be the Song of Ice and Fire. And of course, Rhaegar might have again wavered in his predictions for the third time because many readers believe it was this doubt that eventually saw him seek the hand and bed of Lyanna Stark. Their son, Jon Snow, was thematically bound to a promise at birth and he's secretly of the Targaryen bloodline as well as the ancient Starks and is therefore a walking symbol of ice and fire. With our remaining eyewitness to Jon's heritage rather conveniently disappearing into the swampy forest, many characters in-universe rightly, rightfully believe Daenerys Targaryen as the only possible match for this prophecy because Jon isn't a contender. And with no winds of winter or dream of spring on our shelves, the, the debates still rage about one of, which one of our Targaryens is the prophesied prince or princess. Altogether, this mystery is a huge part of the original books, which by no accident are called A Song of Ice and Fire. And I'm glad to see that they're such a central part of House of the Dragon. This is a really welcome surprise, given that it's not really a part of Fire and Blood source material. Viserys evidently takes the issue extremely seriously. It has a great effect on him as a character, which might not be surprising given that a dragon dream prophecy did save House Targaryen from the extinction of the Doom. So, yeah, here, King Aegon's dreams are influencing Viserys' thoughts and decisions, and we can sense the enormous burden he feel feels guarding this huge secret. Yep, that's right. The uh, burden of this knowledge is so great that Viserys spends a great you know, a great deal of time telling Rhaenyra that it's larger than the throne. It's it's larger than the king. It's larger than any individual or the desires. He he really wants to instill in Rhaenyra this sense of the sacred duty of kingship or, uh, you know, of that House Targaryen holds over Westeros. He follows up by telling her that Jaehaerys would have disinherited her, which is a clear reference to the parallels we noted earlier, with uh, especially with Sarah Targaryen. Uh, Rhaenyra is very insulted that her father hasn't even asked her the truth, but he makes an excellent political point that for such a pu public figure as herself, the truth doesn't matter. Only perception matters. Uh, what people believe, what they hear about you is what matters. Uh, you could tell the truth all day long, and as long as 20 other people are shouting louder than you, that's what matters. So I think Rhaenyra has learned some very important lessons about leadership in this episode, and she's about to prove that she's up for the task. In spite of her expectation that she's about to be replaced by her baby half-brother, Viserys actually sticks by her. He basically tells her he can't afford to sow any more division in the realm, and he has to spend the years that he has left to him trying to unite the realm. He doesn't want to further divide it. Uh, that The sacred duty that I was talking about is part and parcel of Aegon's prophecy, and he takes this so very seriously. And so he declares that Rhaenyra will remain his heir, but she must wed Laenor Valerian. It's part of him 
bringing things together instead of creating more division. So this scene plays out somewhat differently in Fire and Blood, but the Valerian betrothal does come down to an ultimatum there as well. Uh, and more on that in the spoiler section. Here's where those lessons in leadership kick in. Rhaenyra agrees with her father. She knows that she has to act in the best interest of the realm, that it's her duty, but she challenges challenges him to do the same. Naming Otto Hightower a vulture whose self-interest threatens not only her personally, but the stability that Viserys craves, she tells her father that if she must do her duty, then he is equally obligated to do his. Her cooperation in this matter is going to come with a price, and the price's name is Otto Hightower. So that brings us to the final scene with Viserys and Otto, which begins with a reference to Viserys' father, Balon the Brave. Uh, in a slight diversion from the text, Viserys gives his father just five days as hand. It was in reality at about a year. Balon was named hand in 100 and he died in, 100, in 101, af- five days after suffering pain in his side during a hunting trip. Uh, probably, well, they call it a burst belly, uh, probably appendicitis. But this is the event that triggered the Great Council of 101. Uh, this is the final time in the episode that Targaryen ancestors are mentioned, but it's the final of many. We started with Alysanne in the first scene. We had those references and parallels, uh, mentions of her three daughters, uh, including Viserys' mother, Alyssa, and then uh, moving on to Aegon and, and Aenar and Jaehaerys and now Balon. The ghosts of Targaryen's past are ever-present in this very intimate family drama that's playing out here, but they're not just there for window dressing. The presence of these characters is multi-layered. Primarily, they're here in service to the themes of the importance of bloodline, of, of family, the House of the Dragon, as mentioned by Daemon, and of their obligation under the prophecy as seen by Aegon I and generations of his successors, which is something that Otto Hightower, in spite of being the second most powerful man in the realm, remains wholly unaware of. Yeah, I feel like Viserys really sets the scene up nicely. He's throwing Otto off a little bit at the beginning with this sudden nostalgic melancholy, setting it up beautifully. And Otto then describes Balon's death as a grim day. And this is where Viserys turns the conversation around reminding Otto that this grim day was a good day for Otto and House Hightower. Otto, being a second son, rose very high being named Jaehaerys' hand. We already saw shades of Viserys' doubt in Otto this episode, and even earlier when he attempted to broker a marriage between Aegon and Rhaenyra, but he seems more resolute here following that conversation with his daughter. For Otto's part, he seems deeply hurt by the accusations that his schemes went as far back as the death of Balon. I cannot believe that I'm feeling just even like a smidgen of sympathy for him here. But again, uh, just such a nuanced portrayal. Viserys has woken up to the dangers of keeping Otto close, only now understanding that his meet cute with Alicent was actually one of Otto's machinations. 
He says, she was a calculated distraction. I only now realize how calculated it was. He then revisits Otto's accusations against Rhaenyra, having now spoken to both the princess and the queen since their last conversation on the topic. Viserys is resolute now. Otto's interests have been compromised. There is no path forward where Viserys can trust him to put the good of the realm above his own ambitions for his grandson. It feels good to see him and Rhaenyra in agreement about this and making the smart choice that actually protects House Targaryen and, you know, the current named heir. And yet Viserys, while doing this, does not ignore the service that Otto has done him. And this is this is very diplomatic and kingly, um, you know, dismissing someone (laughs) is dangerous. It's got the potential to, you know, inflame tensions of a great house. Viserys did really learn a great deal from Otto in his early years as king. And in the past, his motives may have been more pure. Viserys says, the crown and the realm owe you a great debt that cannot be repaid. But again, he cannot trust his judgment anymore. He removes the hand pin, ending a long era of a high tower influence on the small council. All right. That brings us to the final scene, which is very brief. It, the episode ends with Mace, uh, Grand Maester Melos bringing... Rhaenyra, a beautiful bottle, may I say. <laughs> it's a very lovely decorated, decorative glass bottle uh, filled with moon tea. Moon tea is a concoction from maesters that in world functions as a sort of morning after tonic. It's meant to end a potential pregnancy before it becomes known. What little we know of it is that the ingredients described are indeed real world abortifacients, meaning they're their uh, chemicals or really herbal ingredients that would lead to the end of a pregnancy. Uh, and in world, in Westeros and beyond, women of all social standings seem to know of its use and have relatively easy access to it, from whether it's from a maester or from a wise woman or, or what have you, however uh, they get their, their herbal or their you know, medical care. It's pretty widely known about. It's obvious from Melos's visit that Viserys believes his brother's version of events, or maybe he just wants to be certain in case his daughter is lying to him after all, in spite of Alicent's confidence in her, which really begs the question of what will happen when Alicent finds out about it? Because she's surely going to find out. Uh, there aren't many secrets in a castle like this. Uh, we assume that she'll come to the conclusion that Rhaenyra lied to her and subsequently, furthermore, is responsible for her father getting sacked. The fact that Rhaenyra's lie was technically not what Alicent will think uh, and that she she is nevertheless fully responsible for Otto's firing, uh, all of that notwithstanding, I think it's important that Alicent is going to be without allies in the short term with her father gone and that her perception of exactly how everything played out will be critical to how she reacts to things going forward. The issue of perception versus truth is going to come into very sharp focus here. Uh, Damon mentioned loneliness to Rhaenyra, um, but it seems like in the short term, at least, Alicent is the one who's going to be suffering from that the most which is going to be a really terrible place for her to find herself in. Uh, Almost certainly, these events are going to be amongst the largest factors in a rift that this story is almost certainly building towards. So, and that's the end. That's where the episode leaves us. Wondering. (laughs) 
Yeah, but stick around because we've got a couple of featurettes and then we're going to do some spoilery talk for the for the book readers among you. So why don't we begin with our featurettes? Why don't we do Dragon Watch? What was Dragon Watch like today, Lady Gwyn? Well, this week on Dragon Watch, we were very light on dragons, Yoke Boy. Other than Caraxes buzzing Rhaenyra's ship and a brief mention of Vagar and the... F- First suggestion that the Valerians have dragons. Mm. <laughs> so far, so far we've only met sea smoke, uh, but it is very, very briefly, and uh, they aren't gone again. Mentioned something about them having potentially more dragons. So uh, there is a, you know, spoilerish dragon in the pre in the next time on. So uh, we will not mention who we think that one is. But yeah, um, this this episode was really more about the humans, the the human dragons, than the than the ones flying in the sky. <laughs> okay, now a very lighthearted thing we do: champ or chump. We name the champ of the week, someone who's won the day, and the chump of the week who's made a fool of themselves or has behaved like an idiot, and we want to pile on them. So, Emily, why don't you tell us who the champ of the week is? Sure. I chose my champ very immediately, um, was watching for the first time this season, I got to watch with some friends from the fandom uh, on on Sunday, and we literally leapt up when we saw this character on screen, so had to go for Willem Blackwood right at the beginning. You know, other stories might have Montagues and Capulets or Hatfields and McCoys, but Westeros has Blackwoods and Brackens. Very exciting to see these houses come to the forefront and for the ancient and noble house of Blackwood to win this bout. Gwen, how about your oh. chump? <laughs> well, my, my chump, uh, maybe unsurprisingly, is Gerald Bracken. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, uh, stupid overblown bully gets what's coming to him. That's the headline. Our, our group chat was pretty funny about this. It was <laughs> unanimous, <Yeah>. immediate. <laughs> there, was, there was really no doubt. This was the quickest chump or chump decision in history <laughs> in all four episodes that we've yes. covered. Yes. <laughs> But it's going to take some beating because it was in the first scene. Bested by a boy. Okay, let's take the leash off and talk about some spoilers. When we're doing these episodes, there's a lot we want to say that would spoil the future of the plot. And we have to bite our tongue and it's difficult. So at the end, we sort of let it all out. Why don't we do that? Lady Gwen? Spoilers all books. Spoilers all books it is. Lady Gwyn, what spoilery topics do you have in mind? Well, I had two. We're going to come back, right back to the Blackwood and Bracken situation <laughs> here. Uh, in that opening scene of Storm's End, you see Will and Blackwood kill Gerald Bracken. Uh, two, these two show characters apparently standing in for the historic Samuel Blackwood and Amos Bracken, as I said earlier. Um you know, in Fire and Blood, Amos won the duel. No one was killed, actually, though. Uh, much later, though, after the the dance has broken out, Amos and Samwell will meet again over Steel in the Riverlands. Uh, after Samwell, now Lord of Raventree Hall, declares for Rhaenyra. Amos Bracken, naturally taking the opposing side, because when do they not, 
uh, cut Lord Samwell down in single combat, only to be slain himself by a weirwood arrow apparently shot by Samwell's younger sister, Allie, known as Black Allie. So both Allie and her brother's son and successor, Benjakot, we would expect will have fairly important roles going forward uh, in season two-ish. And we think that it's highly likely that this duel with the show-only characters may have been written in the way it was to set up the future antagonism between those two houses for viewers who might be unaware of of the history so that you have you don't have to be steeped in the lore of Westeros and Brackens and Blackwoods to get it that there is bad blood now between Bracken and Blackwood so now we have a, a show reason for that um so Lord Forrest Frey also shown in that scene who I was mentioning earlier and and wishing that there was some scene on the cutting room floor of him making a fool of himself uh, is actually going to be another prominent supporter of Rhaenyra's during the dance. And as will his wife, uh, Sabbath of Frey, who eventually will take command of the Frey levy uh, following her husband's death. Uh, a lot of people are also wondering if Rhaenyra's cavalier treatment of his bannermen, uh, because Lord Dondarrion probably wasn't the only one that she was rude to, might be laying the groundwork for the Baratheon defection from Rhaenyra's cause later on. Uh, in Fire and Blood, Boromir Baratheon would have been a much older man at this point. He's the youngest half-sibling of Jaehaerys and Alysanne uh, from their mother, Alyssa Valerian's marriage with uh, Rogar Baratheon. So Lord Boromir was actually Rhaenys Targaryen's uncle and would have been in his 60s at this point in the story, in Fire and Blood, it's his son Boros, Rhaenys and Viserys' cousin, who's the one that will eventually take Aegon's side during the dance. And speaking of the future, that duel between guests in the Hall of Storm's End uh, might also prefigure a pivotal moment that we do expect to see right near the end of this season uh, involving two characters who have yet to actually be born, um, though we do assume that that duel is not going to take place inside the castle, <laughs> but will be more uh, in the air, uh, as a matter of fact. So we'll leave that one there. And Emily, I know you have something that you want to talk about. Yeah, I hope that I hope that is that battles in the air. Anyway, <laughs> uh, if you've watched before, you know I usually like to talk about a character and kind of compare them between Fire and Blood and the show. But I, I want to talk not just about a character this week, but about a big event that they're involved in that is yet to come. Some might even consider this event the Red Wedding of House of the Dragon. If you haven't guessed what I'm talking about yet, I am talking about Blood and Cheese. It's one of the most shocking events the series, and one of the alleged primary architects I'm going to be talking about, which is Myceria. The foreign slave turned sex worker, now turned spy master, is a major character in Fire and Blood, but so far she's been relegated to just a few scenes, um, many of which have served to develop Damon as a character more than to tell us about her. She is the prince's lover, his confidant, and in her most recent scene, she calls herself Damon's protector rather than captor. Only in this newest episode does it feel like we're really starting to explore Maseria beyond Damon. Uh, she claims that uh, hard lessons are not welcomed but suffered, which gives us a great deal of insight into her outlook on life and, you know, perhaps her motivations going forward. 
She wants to be liberated, as we found before, and has found a new role now trading information, giving herself more power and agency than she had experienced in her past. Damon, uh, you know, calling her a not-so-common whore represents how others are quick to denigrate her past as a sex worker in an attempt to control her or to, you know, keep her in her place. I'm really interested to see how Masseria deals with this as the white worm, someone who rises high within the ranks of the black faction during the war. Before I go forward, I do want to mention the uh, content warning for sexual assault, child murder, and suicide for about the next two minutes. So I mentioned Blood and Cheese, which is, you know, one of the most infamous acts orchestrated probably by Masseria and Damon during the dance. She and Damon concocted uh, to have two killers, a butcher known as Blood and a rat catcher called Cheese, sneak into the palace and murder one of King Aegon's sons in front of his siblings, his mother, the Queen Helena, and grandmother, who is then at that point the Dowager Queen, Alicent. Blood and Cheese, after committing this heinous act, led through the Red Keep's secret tunnels, tunnels that only one character seems to have a lot of intimate knowledge of so far. It's said Masseria and Damon acted together in, you know, setting this up. The primary evidence for that being a letter sent between them uh, with the famous line, an eye for an eye, a son for a son. There was some additional foreshadowing this episode of, of this event likely to come in, in, in a future season, um, such as, you know, Damon's intimate knowledge of those tunnels and his ability to draw maps of them. There were also a lot of rats, including one in Viserys' bedchamber, making weird eye contact with Allison after Viserys falls asleep. And probably the most heartbreaking foreshadowing of the episode would be Princess Helena crying with her mother being shown in front of a window, uh, foreshadowing her tragic suicide following, you know, all the trauma that she endures witnessing the murder of her son and, you know, imprisonment by her enemies. Okay, so I'm going to go, uh, I'm going to move on to the the betrothal with Laner Valerian. There are a few critical differences to how the betrothal plays out here on screen versus on page. In Fire and Blood, Otto had already been discharged years previously. Uh, it was a small council led by the new hand, Lord Lionel Strong, who decided that uh, Rhaenyra would should wed Laenor to, quote, unite and strengthen the royal bloodline and regain the Iron Throne, the friendship of the Sea Snake with his powerful fleet. So once this decision had been made, it wasn't Rhaenyra making demands upon her father, but Viserys upon her. It says that she initially objected and her father stood his ground, telling her she would wed as he commanded or he would make her half-brother Aegon his heir in place of her. So very different, almost almost in opposition to actually the way it's it's shown here. Um, her objections, according to Fire and Blood, actually stemmed from rumors about Lenor's sexuality. Uh, my half-brothers would be more to his taste, she's reported to have said. A worrying, casual cruelty that isn't translated to the screen here. Um, that objection is absent here, and mainly because even though we saw Sir Joffrey Lonmouth, who's Lenor's rumored lover from Fire and Blood. Uh, so far, there have been no rumors uh, or mention of Lenor Valerian sexuality, leading us to wonder if maybe this information's being withheld in order to surprise Rhaenyra once she's been wed. 
And I don't mean that, no, I mean that as a dramatic surprise, not like in the show they're withholding it from her. I mean, the writers possibly, you know, using that as a plot point to, you know, sort of blindside her with this critical piece of information about her future husband. It's a very different treatment if that's the way they're handling it, which in any case, we shouldn't have to wait very long to find out. I'm sure that this minor mystery will be cleared up in episode five. Okay, my turn. So the one time in this episode I was really biting my spoilery tongue was when I talked about Rhaenyra in the city streets at night. Like I said, I really love this carnival atmosphere so, so much. Uh, But there might have also been one juicy piece of foreshadowing tucked into that sequence. Throughout the scene, brass dragon's heads are shown breathing blasts of fire, which obviously fits in with the themes and affluence of this Targaryen generation. And it also gives exciting pace in the quick-fire manner of the show's editing. However, perhaps there's another layer to these dragons, as Lady Gwyn noted to me while we were watching, a layer of visual foreshadowing. Rhaenyra comes across a crone fortune teller, someone who puts us in mind of Maggie the Frog from A Feast for Crows. The crone asks Rhaenyra, do you wish to know your death child? And then right at that moment, the editing cuts to one of those dragons breathing fire. So those two things are adjacent. It happens so quickly, it's almost subconscious. But, you know, that's how foreshadowing should work. It should be a subconscious experience. Of course, book readers know that eventually Rhaenyra will meet her end when Aegon's dragon Sunfire bathes her in flame and then eats her. So the crone's question of, would you like to see your death child be following by a dragon breathing fire could well be a very subtle and clever piece of visual foreshadowing. And of course, a big thank you to our sitting guest, Emily of the Eerie. Why don't we say her Twitter, at Emily of the Eerie. Thank you so much, Emily. Yeah, if you guys enjoy the show, we do have a Patreon campaign to keep us sailing over these Westerosi waters. So on that note, Lady Gwyn, why don't you shout out our Valyrian Steel and then Castle Steel patrons, and we'll say a big goodbye. Thank you all so much for joining us. It's a great deal of fun. What a great episode. There's more to come. It's just getting better and better, and yeah, that should be reflected in our coverage. So I hope you can tell how much we're enjoying ourselves, how much we're loving this show. Thanks to you all, and good night. Radio Westeros is supported by patrons. Thanks to all of you, including our Valyrian Steel patrons. Aileen, Akiva of House Hunt, Akka from Ashai, Oxheart, Amber the Adamant, Anna, Hortense of Ashai, Arshia, Blight Spirit, Archmaester Kobe of the Higher Mysteries, Cabeth the Unfrozen, Marge of the Mage, David, Dean, James K., Lord Sosa and his faithful canine companion Theoden, Jill, Miss Jody, J.M., Herbert Westeros, the Miskatonic Maester, Epimetheus, Juna of House Aiko, Casey, Lady Silverwing, Infendaris, the Unspeakable Terror, Luke, Mark, Boss, Noble Sir Matthew, Sword of the Early Moon, the Sithorian, Sally, Sheila, Tristis Lorian, Wild Child of the Wolfswood, W, Sword of the Evening, and Lady Dyerliz of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron. 
and our Castle Steel patrons, AJ, Egg on the Six, the only arsling you need, Alex, Ali B, Ali C, Amber, Ashenot Yara, Oakenfist, Pran the Builder, Brian, Camille, Casey, Charitable Rereadings, Chris, Christian, Maddie and Jessica, Sir Clint the Andal, Sir Duncan Cole, Convenience or Death, Sir Archibald Cadogan, David, Dimitri B, Dennis, Esme, Liza, Emily of the Erie, Ezra, Felix, Sir Gladworth, Greg, History of Westeros, Brendan B. Fish, Goldie Juke, Jim McGeehan, Winter's King, John Aris, Rider of the Ice Dragon, Scenarion, The White Storm, Sir Gage, Armorer of Castle Greyguard, Julie Bath of Tarth, Judson, Archmaester June, Healer of the Lesser Poxes, Katie, Lady Kelly, Mistress of the Old Bay of Crabs, Mathos of House Baratheon of Dragonstone, Armed with the Valyrian Sword Malice, Tree Girl, Sir Galahoo of what? Lena Snow, known as the Twilight Star, Lemba, Liston, Nessie the Questing Beast, Monaro Geek TV, Maria, Margareta, and our cohort of Matts, Matt A, Matt C, Matt K, Matt L, as well as Lady Beatrix of House Grey, Maester Mary, Michael M, Anime Lover Nicole, Nimble Nick One Irick, Patrick, Peter Pebble, PJ, Paul B, Paul H, Richard, Sam, Sarah, Sean, Sir Daniel the Sneaky Russian, Sir Swift the Peppered Knight from the House of Black and Grey, Shari, Cern, Kaiser Susie of the Free Folk, Terry, Sir Terence, Knight of the Cedars, Theo the Cannibal of Casterly Rock, Hama Helminth, the Sellsword Sentinel, Valen Valentine, Maiden of the Black Frost, Virginie, Quarren Halfhand, and Yvonne. If you enjoy the podcast, consider being a patron and you could be hearing your name here too. Visit patreon.com slash radioestros for details. Don't forget to like and subscribe. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you all again next week. Bye for now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 